Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn to the New Testament and to the book of 1 John. And having completed our, an initial portion of our exposition of Genesis, Genesis 1-11, uh, and we'll return to Genesis eventually, but we made a transition last Lord's Day to the book of 1 John. And so, God willing, uh, we're going to continue this exposition of 1 John. Last week we looked at 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4, and today we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. And so let me invite you, as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from 1 John, the first chapter, beginning in verse 5, wherein the Apostle John writes, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let's join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, again, uh, we stand before the scriptures that have been read. And we seek thy illumination. Uh, We know that if we do not have thy help, uh, if you are not uh, unveiling and shedding light, then we will not see and we will be in ignorance. And so allow us to see the truth that is here, to understand it, to embrace it, and do a work on our wills as well that we would want to obey and keep thy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Christian faith is filled with spiritual metaphors with spiritual language, signposts that point us toward the truth. Think about, for example, the beloved 23rd Psalm, which begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We realize when we read Psalm 23, or sing it, we realize that that the psalmist is not saying that God is literally a man who is a shepherd, keeper of sheep. But when we hear, the Lord is my shepherd, we know that the psalmist is telling us God is like a shepherd. How is he like a shepherd? He's like a shepherd in the way that he cares for us. In the way that he tends the lambs. He tends the people of God. The Lord is a shepherd in the way that he makes his a flock to lie down in green pastures. He leads them to still waters. That is, He nourishes them. He causes them to drink, to be fed. He allows them to rest. He protects them from fierce predators. 
If they go astray, He goes and seeks them and finds them, brings them back. If, if they're wounded, He picks them up, binds up their wounds. The Lord is my shepherd. We know it's, it's spiritual language. It's, meta, it's inspired metaphorical language. Well, today we're looking at, continue to look at the book of 1 John. And in this first chapter, the passage we're going to look at, there's going to be another one of these spiritual metaphors or symbols that is going to be put before us. It's going to be this declaration that God is light. God is light. We noted last week that the book of 1 John, although we typically uh, call it an epistle, the title of it here in my translation of the Bible says the first epistle general of John. But when you start to read through this little book, as we noted last week, it doesn't sound like an epistle. It doesn't say John to this church, greetings and so forth. It starts off like a sermon or like a doctrinal treatise. And so there are instructions here. As we noted last week, the author of this book is John, who was the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the first martyr, the first apostle who died for his faith, as recorded in Acts 12. But John uh, was one of the followers of Christ. He was, he called himself in the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple. He sat right next to Christ when they were in the upper room. And we saw last week that he stressed the fact starting in verse 1, that he was with Christ, that he had seen Christ, that he had heard Christ, that he had handled Christ. And so he's stressing the authority that he had. He, had, he knew the teachings of Christ. And that's going to be significant because in, as it's going to continue, he's going to tell us that one of the things he heard from Christ was the declaration that God is light. This powerful metaphor. What does it mean when Christians say God is light? Hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit. He doesn't stop there though, as we'll see. He extends upon this metaphor and he also says that Christians should walk in the light. Now that, that sounds like good religious jargon. You know, sometimes when I'm uh, teaching a, a college class on uh, survey of the New Testament and somebody, I uh, have essays for the kids to write, one of the things I'll tell them is be careful of religious jargon. Don't get all jargony with me on what you're going to write. Walk in the light. Yeah. Praise God. Let's walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light exactly? What, what, did, what did the Apostle John mean by that? And also, we'll see by the end of this passage that he gives a caution. And the caution is this. Just because we know God through Christ, and we walk in the light, we try to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Christ, this does not mean that we will be without sin. We are redeemed sinners. And in this life, we are not yet in the glorified state. And Christians can disappoint one another, and we, we certainly disappoint the Lord. We are not yet what we one day will be. And John is stressing that in the teaching we'll listen to today. Well, with that, let's turn and let's look at the passage. And I want to divide the passage into three parts. First part is verse 5. And this is that initial declaration, that, that, that metaphor, that God is light. 
The second part of the passage is verses 6 and 7. And this is where we have the exhortation that as Christians, we are to walk in the light. And then the third part of the text, verses 8 through 10, is a cautionary reminder or instruction that even though we are to walk in the light, in this life we will not be without sin. So those are the three parts of the text. Fairly simple, really. God is light. We should walk in the light. But we will not walk in the light in such a way in this life as to be without sin. Let's see if we can look at each of those three parts and understand them a little bit better. We'll begin with verse 5, the declaration that God is light. And you'll notice that this is the way uh, John begins. He says, this then is the message. And the, the Greek word there for message is angelia. Uh, uh, it's it's the, the word that means news. Uh, the, the Greek word for gospel is euangelia, the good news. Here it's just the word angelia, which means a news or a message. This is the message or the news which we have heard of him, referring back to Christ, the one that he had heard, seen, and handled, and declare unto you, plural, a group of people, not just one person, this is written to a church, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I might mention the word declare there, and declare unto you has the, that same root, angelia, in it. Uh, it's on angelo. So basically he says, this is the news which we have heard of him and we have newsed or messaged to you. We see here again as we start off in verse 5 that John is returning to and I think reinforcing a theme that began earlier in this chapter. And that is the special role that he and the other apostles have in conveying the teaching and the life and all the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ on to believers who are living in this age. Last time I made mention of the disciple Thomas, and many people are familiar with in John chapter 20, when Thomas isn't there on that first Lord's Day evening when the risen Christ appears to the disciples. And Thomas says, unless I can see him myself, unless I can put my hands into his his wounds, unless I can put uh, my, my fingers into the, the print of the, the nails in his hands, I will not believe. And the next Sunday evening, the next Lord's Day evening, Christ appeared again to the disciples and he appears to Thomas. Thomas is there and he says, okay, Thomas, you wanted to see and you wanted to touch. Here I am. And he says, he said to him there, you know, reach out your finger and behold my hands. Reach out your hand and thrust it into my side. And then in John 20, verse 27, Christ had said to Thomas, and be not faithless, but believing. And at that point, Thomas uh, was not doubting Thomas, but believing Thomas. He responds in John 20, 28 to Christ, the risen Christ, having seen him, my Lord and my God. Someone after the service last Sunday during lunch uh, pointed out to me the next verse, uh, which is really key there, and it fit with what we were talking about last week. In John 20, 29, Christ said to Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. 
Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And already Christ is anticipating the fact that after his ascension, that it would not be possible for believers any longer to see him and to hear him. But how would people come to faith? They would come to faith by hearing the testimony of the apostles. By reading the New Testament itself, which would, which would be written by the apostles. Thereby, in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, remember he prayed in verse 20, for them which shall believe on me through their, meaning the apostles' word. And so that, that same theme is coming back here. Look again at verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. We, we could sort of picture here maybe something like a, a relay race. We, we, I've used this analogy before. This is the way the faith is, is transported. The apostles had seen Christ. They had heard Christ. Then everything that they had seen and, they, and they, that they had heard, there were many of those things that were led by the Holy Spirit to write down. And when they were alive, they could preach. They could tell people. And this, this truth, this deposit of information about Christ, they passed on to those in the next generation. And then the apostles passed off the scene, but because the Word of God had been inscripturated, what they said, their testimony was able to be passed on to the next generation and passed on to the next generation. And those of us who are believers now, what has happened is we have received from others. We have received from others what the apostles said, and we're in possession of it right now. And if Christ delay his coming, we will pass it on. These little ones that are sitting here and some that are here yet to be born. Should Christ delay, we will pass it on to them. By God's grace. And, and the Lord will be never left without a witness. And so uh, this is, I think, what John is getting at. In John 14, verse 26, in the Gospel of John, the Lord had said, John records, the Lord had said to the disciples, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. How, how were John and the other apostles able to remember all the things that Christ said and did and all the things he declared about himself? Because this wasn't a naturalistic work. Because the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was there bringing to their remembrances the things that Christ had said. And again, there's a special emphasis on the fact that he's conveying the things they heard of Christ. Again, go back to verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. We, we noted last week the peculiarity when you look through the Gospels, there are no physical descriptions of Christ. But there are the descriptions of his words, of his teaching. And this, this is given focus here too. I'm passing on the things we heard from him. This is what is important for you to know. and This is what I am declaring unto you. And again, there's this whole sense of this conveyance. You hear this as well sometimes in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Just about every Sunday afternoon, we read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. What did Paul say there? For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Regarding the gospel he preached in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15.3, he begins 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And so now, staying at verse 5, what is the thing he's going to talk about? What is it that he heard from Christ that he wants to convey? And it's this declaration. This is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you. What is it? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There seems to me to be at least two things that are being said here. One thing is positive. We might say one thing is negative. First, there's the positive thing, the declaration that God is light. And this is really our, our central stack pole for our message today, for the passage. God is light. What does this mean? What do, I mean, it's, again, it could be religious jargon. People could be running around and saying, God is light, God is light. What does that mean exactly? Well, I guess technically speaking, we need to start with trying to understand what light is. And I'm not an, an engineer or a scientist, as, as some people in this room might be. But if we, if we ask what is light, I guess technically speaking, drawing on the wisdom of, um, of Wikipedia here, uh, the scientists will tell us that light refers to electromagnetic radiation that can be perceived or detected by the human eye at certain wavelengths and which travels in a vacuum at, here's your test for your high school physics, 186,282 miles per second. That's what light is. The Bible tells us that God created light. When in Genesis 1-3 it says, let there be light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Bible also tells us that on the fourth day of creation, God said in Genesis 1-14, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And in Genesis 1-16, he said, it says, God made two great lights, the greater light, presumably the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, presumably the moon, which reflects the light of the sun, to rule the night. And then it says he made the stars also. So that's what light is. When John says, God is light, I declare to you what we heard from him, God is light, what did he mean by that? Well, we know he did not mean to say that God is part of the creation, that he created himself. What John meant to say, of course, is that God is like the light. Just as when we say, the Lord is my shepherd, we are saying God is like a shepherd. And so here, when it says God is light, it means God is like light. God is a being who is like light. How is God like light? Let me, let me, let me consider two things, two ways in which God is like light. First of all, God is like light in that he brings clarity and illumination. God is like light in that he brings clarity and illumination. Go into a dark basement in the middle of the night and grope about and find the wall and find the panel and flip the switch 
And then everything that was hidden and the little piece of Lego that you stepped on or, or whatever else that might happen, everything that was hidden is revealed as the room, the basement, is bathed in light. John is saying that God is like that. That knowing God is like that. That when you don't know God, you really can't perceive what's around you. You're groping about without understanding, without clarity. And God brings light. God lets you see things as they are. He reveals himself. He lets you know who you are. He lets you know what the goal and purpose of your life is. God is light. God is light. Apart from God, we are confined by fear and ignorance. Secondly, second way in which God is like light. I have a feeling some people are going to give me some more examples I didn't think of over lunch. Please do. Second way God is like light. God is like light. In that, in some circumstances, light can be so powerful that we cannot look directly upon it. We appreciate being able to flip the switch, fire up the light bulb, and see the room. But if you go out on a sunny day, clear day, and, and look continuously at the sun, you're going to injure your eyes. You can't do it unless you want to go blind. God is also like the light in this way. He makes himself known to us, but we, as mere men, as finite creatures, cannot look upon him directly, nor can we understand completely all that he is. We cannot, in our creatureliness, know all that he is, lest our senses be scourged. This is what some theologians call the creator-creation distinction. And when John says God is light, in part, I think that's what he's saying. This is what the hymn writer, and I thought about us singing this hymn. I chose the other one instead of, instead of Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. But if you're familiar with that hymn, it starts off, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, In Light, Inaccessible, Hid From Our Eyes. See, it's the opposite. He's light in that he, he shows things, but he's also light in that he's inaccessible to us in him. And he must be hid from our eyes because he's so great and so glorious. And so it's, it's interesting, sort of two sides of a coin to say that God is light. When John says God is light, he is saying God is the only one who allows us to see all things as they truly are. And he is also saying he is so great and so powerful that we mere men are in no wise able to look upon him directly. There's one more important part of this statement in verse 5 that needs emphasis. Look at it again. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the part that we need to pay special attention to, again, is, is I mentioned it before, but we'll come back to it. This is the message which we have heard of 
him. John is saying this, this declaration, God is light, is not something that he has fashioned. It's something that he heard from Christ. Now, we might take a concordance or we might Google or whatever, and we might look through the Gospels and we might try to find a place where it's recorded that Jesus said God is light. And if we do so, we will not be able to find that place. But we will be able to find in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, just after uh, he offers a forgiveness to the woman taken in adultery, he declares, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And then we can go to the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you were to look at the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, this is after Christ had completed his ministry. He had been crucified. He had been raised. He had ascended. And the Holy Spirit has helped John to remember all the things that he said, including what he said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And it's interesting that in this opening chapter of John, that John picks up with this metaphor that Christ is light. And so if you look at John 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He talks about John the Baptist. And he says of John the Baptist, if you look in verse 8, he, John the Baptist, was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And then he talks about also how he and the other apostles were privileged to behold Christ the light. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then this is interesting. Look at verse 18 of John 1. He says, No man hath seen God at any time. Remember, he can't look directly at the light. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. We could not look directly upon God who is light. And we needed the mediation of the second person of the Godhead who became man and took on flesh and revealed to us who God is in a way that we can perceive it and understand it. And so uh, all that I think is, is there. When did Christ say this? Well, He said it when he, when he said, I am the light of the world. And He said it when He said in John 10.30, I and My Father, we are one. And so if Christ is light, God is light. God the Father is light. And the Holy Spirit is light. And so this is where John is coming up with this. I declare unto you what we heard from Him. God is light. That's the positive. Notice the second part of it though is the negative. And in Him is no darkness at all. Again, this is metaphorical language. There's a contrast that's being put forward here between what it's like in the daytime when there's light and what it's like at night when there's darkness. When it's daytime, you can see things clearly. You can make things out. And so being in the light is, uh, is, is knowing truth, knowing what goodness is. But in the darkness of the night, it's hard to make things out. And so... 
this is a place where things are unsure, where there's evil, where there's falsehood. And John says that in God, who is light, there is no darkness at all. This is a declaration. It sounds fairly simple, but sometimes the simple and the plain things have to be articulated. It's the declaration that God is good, that God is benevolent. The God we worship is a good God. We've been in the study of, of world religions, and we've seen that there are religions in the world that don't look upon their gods as being good. Think about the ancient Greeks. They thought their gods were capricious. They would play tricks on them. They would, they would withhold things from them. They would punish them and so forth. At, at their whim. And, and John is, is declaring to us that the God of the scriptures, who is light, that there's no darkness in him, there's no evil in him, that he is all good. And so in the Psalms, in Psalm 25, 8, David declares, good and upright is the Lord. And in Psalm 145, verse 9, David adds, the Lord is good to all. If this can be said of the Godhead, it can also be said in particular of the second person of the Godhead in his incarnation. The Lord Jesus Christ was, what's the, what's the constant uh, refrain of the apostles? He was without sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In Hebrews 4.15, Paul said, that Christ was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so there's a foundational basic truth that's being expressed here. You know it already? That's wonderful. Our young people here and new believers need to learn it. God is good. And the Lord Jesus Christ didn't, didn't sin. His will was always in perfect conformity with that of the Father. And there was no evil in him. It would take a Christ without sin to save sinful men. And so this is being all being declared here in these two statements. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let's move to the second part of our text now, which is verses six and seven. And this is the exhortation to believers that they are to walk in the light. And it's interesting because John begins... Uh, sort of negatively with the description of a person who, whom we could call a, a kind of false professor. Someone who, who perhaps says he's a disciple of Christ, but he shows that he is not a genuine disciple of Christ by the way he lives. And so look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, I think it's, it's interesting. You can take note of this. All throughout this passage, I love the humility of the Apostle John because all these statements are made in the first person plural. So John is counting himself. Hypothetically, if, even if I, as an apostle, claim to have fellowship, to have koinonia, with God the Father and His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and have fellowship with the other apostles, if I claim this, and yet I walk in the darkness, I am a liar. 
And I, I'm not doing the truth. So he's, 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 he's making sure he's including himself in this, in this judgment. And I, I think it shows uh, his humility. He's warning here against hypocrisy, uh, against putting on a mask, against play acting, against pretending to be a believer and not actually living like a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, he uses this metaphor here of walking. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. And of course, this metaphor of walking, again, it's a, it's a spiritual symbol. One of many. We've, we've already seen God's light is like this. This is a symbol. This is, a, this is spiritual language. Walking in the darkness doesn't mean you know, taking a walk at midnight. Um, it means how one conducts oneself. How one behaves. How one acts. How he speaks. If we walk, if we say we are followers of Christ and have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we conduct ourselves in an ungodly way, then he says, we lie. We are liars. And we do not, notice he doesn't say we do not say the truth or speak the truth, but we do not do the truth. That is, we do not do the good deeds we do not show the fruit of a person who is genuinely converted. And good works are not, as we've noted many times, the root of our faith, but it is the fruit of our faith. The contrast comes in verse 7. And he has a, he has a nice conjunction to make a con In contrast to the person who's a false professor or a backslidden believer, he says, but... Contrast, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, he starts off in this verse to speak positively. If we walk in the light, if we live in such a way as to please Christ, if we live in a Christ-like and godly manner, then one of the most outstanding blessings we receive is that we share in koinonia with one another, with fellow believers, because we're sharing in fellowship and koinonia with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I think I noted last week in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a description of the church of Jerusalem. It says they were devoted to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, or koinonia, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we can lay that passage alongside of this one. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another. We show that we are authentic believers by the ways in which we live out our lives. And that, I think that's particularly striking when he talks about you have fellowship one with another because remember, this is most likely a church he's writing to that has gone through schism over false teachers who have come in and denied that Christ had come in the flesh. We looked at last week, remember in, in, in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us but they were not of us. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, where he he encouraged trying the spirits. And he talks about those who, uh, who deny that Christ has come in the flesh. 
They've had conflict, and basically I think what he's saying is we've had conflict because we've had a mixed congregation. There's some people walking in darkness and some people walking in light, and there's been this conflict. But if we would only just walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have koinonia with one another. Sometimes people say, don't talk about doctrine, pastor. You'll create division. Don't talk about godly life practices. You'll cause division. But John seems to be saying exactly the opposite. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you will have koinonia, fellowship with one another. The way to have unity in a church, and I think to God's glory, we've seen this borne out in our church over the years, is the way to have unity in the church is to have unity of belief and unity of practices. The churches that go through schisms are generally the ones that don't know what they believe. So one person holds one view about something. One person holds another type of view. And we need to be careful about this. Our confession has a chapter also on religious liberty. And there are some places where we have to bear with one another and recognize there are, there are weaker brethren and we don't want to be the police and, and be going through the, every detailed decisions of one life. But we're talking about the basic doctrinal core things. Unity and belief and unity and practice bring koinonia with one another and lessen the types of schisms that might come within a church. We're not, we're not debating here whether Christ came in the flesh in this church, right? <laughs> we're, not gonna, we're not debating that. We're not debating that, that God is uh, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not debating that the scriptures are inerrant and infallible. That's not, up for, that's not on the chopping block for debate. We're not debating whether, uh, how to define marriage. It's one man, one woman, one flesh union. That's, those things aren't, aren't up for debate, and so there's unity. And I think John is saying that. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And then he adds at the end of verse 7, something that those who walk in the light show that they have, and that is that they have experienced salvation through the blood of Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. John calls attention here at the end of verse 7 to the atoning significance of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've noted before how some of the old liberal preachers of past generations mocked the biblical evangelical focus on the blood of Christ, calling it a slaughterhouse religion. But the term, the blood of Christ, is not one that was simply pulled out of thin air by contemporary evangelicals. These are the words of the Apostle John, as he says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And guess what? It wasn't just John's invention. He's conveying what he heard from Christ. Remember when Christ was in the upper room with his disciples and he instituted the Lord's Supper? What did he say to them as it's recorded in Luke 22, verse 20? This cup is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. 
The Apostle Paul in the opening chapter of Ephesians speaks of how Christ made us accepted in the Beloved, meaning Christ Himself. And he wrote, In whom, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1.7 The old hymn, which we're going to sing a little later, asks, What can wash away my sin? And answers, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Notice the the reference here in verse 7 to cleansing. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Notice that the cleansing does not come through our own efforts to clean ourselves up. Any more than an infant can clean himself up by changing his own diaper. You'll have about as much success of cleaning yourself up, spiritually speaking. This cleansing does not come about merely through the ordinance of outward baptism. This passage does not teach baptismal regeneration. You are cleansed through going through the ordinance of baptism as important as it is. But how does cleansing come? By the shed blood of Christ upon the cross. And notice also in verse 7 the adjective all. The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses us not from some sins, not from merely what we might think are little sins or even greater sins. You know what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6.23? He said, the wages of sin, singular, one sin is death. But what does here John tell us? The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses cleanseth us from all sin. The scope of His cleansing blood, His atoning work on the cross is total. We preach and teach the biblical notion of total depravity, rightly so, radical depravity. But guess what? We also preach total or radical redemption through the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the third part of our text. Verses 8 through 10. First is the declaration God is light. Secondly, the exhortation to walk in the light as He is in the light. Thirdly is the cautionary reminder or instruction that even though we walk in the light, we are to walk in the light. In this life, we will not be without sin. The teaching here addresses the spiritual condition of the redeemed believer in this life as we live between the first advent of Christ and the second, as we live in a world where the kingdom has already come. We're already, we've already been transported into the kingdom. Paul can write in Colossians that we sit in the heavenly places in Christ. And yet we also know that that transportation is not yet fully complete because we are continuing to live in this sinful and fallen world and we still have remaining corruptions within us. Martin Luther famously said that the Christian was in this life, as he put it in Latin, simul justus et peccator. Simul at the same time 
Eustace, justified, et peccator, and sinners. At one and the same time, we're justified and sinners. And so, John is saying to believers whom he has exhorted, walk in the light as he is in the light. But then he says this caution. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all know as believers that there is a rub or a tension that we experience in this life. Paul described it in Galatians 5.17 when he wrote, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. 1 John 1.8 that I just read is an indispensable proof text against any teaching of what we might call perfectionism. Any notion that we can attain full holiness in this life. There are some who have presented this and preached this. I've told you before about how years ago, I shudder to think how many decades ago now when I was a college student, that there was a fellow who would, he may still, still be out there for all I know, but he would go around to various college campuses and he would, he would carry a big cross and his name was Brother Jed. And he would go out uh, into the central part of the campus. He did it at the school that I went to out uh, on the lawn. And, and, and he would start denouncing all the sins of various people. And he, this would draw a crowd. And he would uh, yell at girls for wearing their, their skirts too short and uh, yell at guys for, for drinking a beer or something like that. And, um, and so he would be, you know, hellfire brimstone and then he would be challenged well who are you to judge me and he would say he would say back in response to them i can judge you because i no longer sin he claimed that he had not sinned for a good number of years and um sadly brother jed uh was reinforcing a false stereotype that many non-Christians think about Christians. That we, that we somehow think that we're, we aren't sinners or we're no longer sinners because we have become Christians. When in truth it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? You didn't really know you were a sinner until you became a Christian. Your eyes were enlightened and you saw the, 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 the sin problem in your life. The light came and you saw yourself for who you are. And even after you were converted, you recognize those remaining corruptions with you because you're not in the glorified state yet. There will come a time if you're in Christ. And immediately at your death, your spirit is with him. And then finally at the final resurrection, your spirit and body are with him in glory. And the Apostle John here is, again, Nipping in the bud any conception of perfectionism in this life. If we say that we have no sin, we are self-deceived. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In verse 9, now he speaks positively 
If, if verse 8 is the, the, the position one should not have, verse 9 is the position one should have as a believer. Notice, continuing the first person plurals, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, as Christians, there's an initial starting point when we're justified by faith when we confess our sins to God through Christ and we receive forgiveness. But guess what? As we live the Christian life, we live in what the Puritans called habitual repentance. We're saved, but then we're, 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 we're constantly having brought to our minds the ways in which we have fallen short of God's glory and we're coming before Him and we are confessing our sins and we're seeing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, as we look at this, it doesn't say anything here, does it, about you need to go to a priest and offer confession of your sins through the sacrament of reconciliation, does it? No. Nor, for us evangelicals, does it say that every sin has to be, you have to stand up in a meeting of a church and confess every sin. Either. No instructions like that. Personal confession to a minister might be a good thing. Confession of sin before the body of believers might be a good thing, appropriate under some circumstances. But, but what's, what should be the main focus? To whom do we go to confess our sins? To God. Psalm 51. David has committed adultery. He's committed murder. He's been confronted by the prophet Nathan. He composes Psalm 51. If you're struggling with sin, you're feeling guilty, you should read Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, David says to God, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. My goodness, he committed adultery and murder. But he recognized that the, 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 the biggest level of fault had been his sin against his God. And notice, by the way, that the forgiveness that comes from the confession of sins does not depend upon the faithfulness or the righteousness of the one who repents, but upon the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a repetition there of the same phraseology from the end of verse 7, cleanseth us from all sin here to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think it's understood that what is the means through which this is achieved, what was referenced in verse 7? The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. That's what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Not our act of confession, as important as it is, but the shed blood of Christ. In verse 10, John returns to the point that he made in verse 8. Reinforcing it, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him, meaning God, a liar, and His Word is not in us. The Lord Jesus Christ, when He was here on earth, said in Mark 10, verse 45, that He came to give His life a ransom for many. The man who denies the reality of sin in his life, even after he's converted, 
denies his need for the one who came to give his life a ransom for him. He denies God's plan of salvation and sanctification. He denies the reality of glorification which is yet to come. He denies the power of the shed blood of Christ. And he would make God a liar, but God is not a liar. As Titus said, or as Paul said in his letter to Titus in Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. One of the first steps to salvation is coming to the understanding that you are a sinner and you need the grace of God to save you. And one of the first steps of sanctification is recognizing that you're still a sinner and you need the grace of God to sanctify you. If we deny this, John says, his word is not in us. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage, and I hope that the Holy Spirit, where this preacher has stammered and not gotten things right, that that the Holy Spirit will fill in the gaps and apply his word to us. But let me just, let me see if we can just summarize a couple things. First of all, God is light. Only he brings clarity and shows reality. Are things cloudy in your life? Are there misunderstandings? Uncertainties? Ask the Lord to give you light. God is light. At the same time, he is so much greater than we that we cannot presume that we would ever look upon him, that we will ever know fully all that he is or all that he's revealed. We know that we cannot, we cannot look upon God. This is why we need a mediator. We needed a mediator. Even one who declared, I am the light of the world. And then as a believer, we can understand this passage that we are to walk in the light and not in darkness. That one of the seals, the signs, the evidences, the fruits of the fact that we are actually believers is that we are striving to walk in the light, that we are striving to obey Christ and His commandments. Let me just give you one little snapshot, and believe me, please don't think I'm going to preach a second sermon on this passage. I'm not. But, but I, just want, just, I just want to give you one little suggestive snapshot into what this was like among the first Christians. And this is in Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 20. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. There are people there who've been converted. But they're in the process of sanctification. And this tells you something about what like, these believers were like. And what really every church, every, every authentic group of believers are like. There are people in there who are saved. But they're not perfect. And they are being sanctified. By God's grace. And so, so listen, listen to what he says. This is started in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, I'm not going to preach through it. I just want you to hear it. He says to them, But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, your former walk or your former way of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, 
And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. I love this one, verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more. What does that imply? There were people in the church at Ephesus who had been thieves, robbers. And Paul said, okay, this might be obvious, guys, but if you're a Christian now, don't steal. That's not one of the things we allow. That's not one of the things that pleases Christ. Don't take things that that aren't yours. But instead, look at verse 28. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. See, there were Christians who before had taken things, had robbed and stolen, and Christ changed their lives so that they wanted to work honest labor with their hands so they could have things and give it away. That's pretty radical transformation from walking in the darkness to walking in the light, isn't it? Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the, unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Notice how many of these things relate to the, to the language and words. If you're a Christian... Don't fly off the handle, the handle in anger against people. Don't be bitter. Don't be putting people down with your words. You're a believer now. You're a Christian now. Sanctify your tongue to the glory of God. Sanctify your thought life to the glory of God. Then positively, verse 32. And be ye kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's walking in the light as he is in the light. The last part of this passage is John tells us listen, as you're walking in the light, don't be so foolish as to believe that you will be without sin. Don't be filled with some kind of self-righteous idea that you're going to attain to perfectionism in this life. But be humble. Confess your sins first to Him and know that He will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you by the blood of Christ from all your unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God is light. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy word and for the Apostle John, for his faithfulness and his generation and how through the inscripturation of the word that faithfulness is exhibited to us. We acknowledge, we confess that we have come short of thy glory. Forgive us of our sins and help us to walk in the light 
as Christ is in the light. We ask this in his name. Amen.